0: hey what's up welcome to Politicore. um on this episode we got a uh, got dr brian lovato um evan do you want to you want to do a brief guest introduction
1: sure yeah so brian is a professor and a labor organizer and an author um especially involved in uh literature around abolition um and uh also has a long history and in, in involvement in punk in various ways so um, really a, a perfect guest uh, and uh yeah a good good addition to a series of, of kind of academic um, more more academic leaning guests that we've had focusing on especially on um, kind of anarchist Marxist uh, perspectives on our current moment
0: yeah definitely if i uh, i feel like At this point, if, like, I was, like, looking for, like, a new podcast or whatever, and I clicked on something called Politicore, and it was just, like, two guys always, like, making fun of Scowl or whatever, (laughs) I would be so mad. Um, Yeah. uh, But, yeah, um, just a couple housekeeping things. Just because we got, like, we got a couple new listeners over the past, like, month or so. Um, We're not really a current events podcast. We do our best to be, like, a mix of, like, political theory, and then also we try to work in some conversations just around like hardcore music punk music and all of the subgenres that are affiliated with it. Um, the podcast is always going to be very sympathetic and uh, favorable towards, you know, any decolonial anti-capitalist um, and anti-racist projects. Um, hopefully that's not a surprise to, to anyone listening. Um, but yeah although they'll always be free and we do them when we can. So, uh, yeah,
1: it's, 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 I, hopefully it's, it's clear that, you know, most of our focus tends to be on, you know, anti-imperialism, anti-colonialism, anti-exploitation practices more or less domestically, but presumably people can come to their conclusion that, that politic, uh, political ideology extends globally, and um, there are a handful of, of colonial imperial practices happening in the world right now that um, are rightfully being brought to more awareness. Uh, some that, that, that um, perhaps need more attention are in Darfur, Myanmar, Sudan, Congo, uh, but of course, what's happening right now in Gaza deserves um, deserves all of the attention it's getting, and um, it's our hope that people know where we stand on that.
0: Yeah, well said. Um, well, yeah, I've, I, uh, I'm I'm down to I'm down to transition over to our interview with Brian. If you are, man. Yeah, that sounds good to me. Okay, cool, Phil. Thanks, everyone. Um, see you soon.
2: Oh, I'll, I'd love to hear what, what you have for me. <laughs>
0: well, I'm mostly stealing
1: <laughs> it from what I've found. So um, just for our audience's purposes, uh, Brian is a political theorist and organizer, um, I believe, currently at UCSB. No, um, oh, that was... Was that a while ago? You. Yes. Are you,
0: are God fucking damn it.
2: Uh, <laughs> no, so I, I did my, my PhD at UCSB, um, finished that about a decade ago. Um Worked as a labor organizer, worked as a visiting professor in Illinois, and then currently at uh, California State University Fullerton. Okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That was an outdated uh, resource. Uh,
2: Yeah. It's probably my own website.
1: (laughs) (laughs) In fact, Um, Um, yeah. But a lot of it looks like a lot of your your research interests or background are in Marxist, anarchist, post structuralist, and decolonial thought. Um, and in particular uh, working at the intersections of race, class, and gender and it looks like recently you've been focusing on the work of Laclau and Mouffe and um, Hegel and uh, let's see, who else are we primarily perhaps on is it Dunaevskaya? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so much to dig into there. Yeah. Um would you mind elaborating on any of the things? Yeah. So
2: doing? so my work that kind of deals with all of those thinkers you mentioned, as well as um CLR James and Cornelius Castoriadis. Um that was my my dissertation work. I, I made a book out of it. Um I think I'm trying to remember what the book is called, uh Democracy, Dialectics, and Difference, or some some order of those words. Um, I should know that better. Um, And basically, it draws on Dunayevskaya and CLR James primarily, but also uh, Kostoriadus, as I said, in order to kind of provide a a defense of Marxism from um, its post-structuralist critics, um, Laclau and Mouffe being kind of the the foil there. um, Mm -hmm. And you know, really, really digs into kind of the potentials for for radical democracy within the Marxist tradition, um, the potential for kind of this radically open conception of history, rather than kind of the linear, progressive notion that that we often associate with Marxism, as well as bringing in factors like race and gender um, in addition to class, and showing how those those all connect um, through material practice, right? That they're not simply kind of ideas that just get attached to class in order to to manipulate people but they're actually um, meaningful material practices in themselves Um, and so kind of to an attempt to kind of redeem marxism in a way from from folks who would say that it it falls short in those areas
1: right i think uh, especially uh, folks who have historically described it as being kind of a um, unidimensional focus on class while ignoring these other uh figurations um in my understanding donavskaya has more of a reading of marx as humanist uh where it allows for an interpretation of his work uh that does not in fact ignore the i guess idiosyncrasies of um race gender uh, those sorts of categorization categorizations and how they fit into that same framework.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that reading of Marx actually, I think makes at least a particular strand of the Marxist tradition much closer to, um, I guess, post-structuralism or postmodernism. but maintains that, um, as you guys were talking about, this kind of utopian vision earlier, it maintains that utopian core of Marxism that's, that's often lacking in kind of these post-traditions.
1: And that's, the, and perhaps enough of the CLR, James, and Daniel sky have like uh, trickled down to me that when I hear Chantal and Mouf, I mean, uh, Laclau and move I, it doesn't sound so much as of a criticism, so much of an elaboration uh, on what I've already heard from people like James and Daniel Sky mm-hmm. where I'm like, it's already been that circle has already been squared for me so the, the the post has sort of uh atrophied when i i think about post-marxists like the move
2: yeah i think that, that's that's absolutely right and i i think you know they part of that is that they're they're focusing on a particular marxist tradition a particular vision of the marxist tradition um, I think what was popular in France as they were coming up as well as in their own, you know, as they're writing. Um, and so it's, it's very much this, this particular vision of, of Western Marxism, both in its kind of political manifestations as well as in the academy. But you had this stuff going on outside of the European core, right? Whether that's, you know, people organizing auto workers and miners in the U.S. as Dunaevsky and James were doing or if it's on the African continent or in Latin America, you had people who were using a Marxist framework to to kind of do things that a lot of European thought didn't catch up to until later and thought that it was some unique contribution or unique gotcha moment for Marxism, right?
1: I imagine that's especially where James comes in, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think his work on the Haitian revolution is, is, essential for for thinking through kind of the possibilities of marxism thinking through the types of actors that 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 a marxist thought might be able to um grapple with and um and use for um for analysis yeah
1: yeah because and that i think also connects to what i understand and this is i have a very preliminary understanding of all these thinkers i'm interested but you know have not gone too deep um but um that that interpret or that integration of james also helps to be a more practical to me a more practical um analysis based on what i understand to be donievsky's kind of theory um of practice to theory mm-hmm. uh, rather than the other way around is that fair to say
2: yeah i think so i mean i think i mean both of them were, were very much involved in, in kind of the practical side of marxism and how how practice is theory right and, and i mean this isn't unique to them this is this is actually part of the western marxist tradition right this is like lukacs talks about this this unity of practice and theory um and i think it's it's in this american setting right by you know two immigrants to america doing this work that you see what that looks like and so i think i think you're right in pointing out that that james really does represent this this practical side right and ask guy as well they're both doing organizing work they're both um looking at what's going on in the ground in the united states and building theory from the practice and then that theory coming back as practice right um there's, yeah, there's so much. I feel like
1: that dialectical tradition, I almost always, and maybe it's because I spend more time in academic circles, I almost always hear it formulated more in the other direction where theory is then there to kind of like help to guide or structure action and activity and praxis um, rather than. Um, having more of a, being informed by what it sees as grassroots. Um, but, but that's something that has never jived with me. So it's especially good to see it, this kind of very real life example of, of it being used the other way.
2: Yeah. I mean, absolutely. And I think one of the, one of the problems we run into, you know, doing theory or even reading theory, engaging with theories that we often treat it as as dogma rather than as as another tool right um and so you see so often right that marxism it becomes this ism first off right that can then get get mapped onto any social situation rather than saying okay well what are the lessons of marxism what what tools does marxism provide for us and i so i think you know when Laclau move look around and say well look at it, it's inherently authoritarian oh it can only deal with class oh it depends upon this this conception of history that moves you know through these stages of production that they're they're right in, in pointing out that that's so often how marxism gets treated how, how theory in general gets treated um, but but there's there's so much more to it when we think about theory as, as one one tool among, among many others rather than as as dogma and if we think about theory as, as you know, itself as a political intervention, rather than as an intellectual exercise.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's where I think the synthesis has to happen rather than um, just as, as they often formulate this kind of uh, internecine segmentation between, um like-minded populations who just have have uh, sequestered themselves from one another here is the here is the streets and here's the ivory tower um and and instead of synthesizing those efforts i think there tends to be um these internal antagonisms uh which as has almost always been an issue in the left has has subverted uh, a lot of that that progress mm-hmm. um for for listeners or for people who um, get a little caught up in uh, semantics uh, semantic differences uh, can you talk a little bit about how you use square what sometimes is registering as a conflict between like modern Marxism and, and modern anarchism
2: <laughs> I, I I don't know that I can. Um,
0: but I, I, mean, I, think that that's, I mean, that's a that's a, a big ask,
2: right? Yeah. Um,
0: Jesus, Evan, we're not even like warmed up yet. You're fucking <laughs> coming at all right? Like well, first question.
1: I mean, I, I think least, I think that that's just what I'm. What when I think about these kind of internal antagonisms um, that that what some of these post-structuralists would focus on um as as being not necessarily accounted for in some of marxist theory Mm -hmm. this is some of what i think of uh, when i think of early workers parties where the conflicts were were often between you know people who ideologically were to most of an outside audience on the very same page but um getting really bogged. And this is where perhaps a the theoretical um, um, can get a little too theoretical, where you get people like Bakunin, Kropotkin, and Proudhon um, getting to my eye sort of caught in the weeds rather than keeping their eye on the same, same um, telos that they all have in mind. Um, and I think the same sort of thing can happen between Marxists and, and anarchists.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm just, I think feel like at least at, at the, that moment, right, in like the mid-19th century where you have these all these different socialist traditions coming together, pushing against each other, I feel like so much of the conflict was a conflict of personalities, mm. right? like people not wanting to let go of kind of their segment of the working class or certain allegiances based on national origin or regional origin even um because I, I mean i think you know a lot of marxist criticisms particularly of Proudhon, are, are are spot on um but i don't think that means we need to sign on to a, like what would become a marxist political project necessarily you know mm-hmm. and i i mean and i say this as someone who often never knows um how do I identify for lack of a better term, whether, whether it's as a Marxist or as an anarchist, um, you know, and, and I'll, I've, I've said before, like, oh, well, intellectually I I'm, I'm a Marxist, I guess I draw from this Marxist tradition um, at least that's kind of the, the closest thing I would, I would say, but, but politically I, I find so much more going on in within anarchism and within anarchist political projects. Mm. Um, but I think, for me at least, Marxism provided the, the tools and the language to talk about these projects in a way that, um, that the classical anarchist tradition didn't fully provide. I mean, there, there's, and this is just, again, just for myself, I, I think I think there's lots of, of good stuff in that tradition. Um, I think, you know, particularly like, like Emma Goldman is a thinker that, that I could not do without, mm-hmm. but, but for myself, Marxism gave me the tools, like through kind of a dialectical analysis of material practices that made sense to me, it clicked for me. And, and I don't think that, that therefore is a matter of, um, or a reason to form huge disagreements and cleavages with other people working towards similar goals. Right. At the same time, I don't think we need to ignore differences and say, Oh, well, we'll, we'll sort it out in the end. Right. Cause I mean, <laughs> we've seen what happens when that occurs, right. We've seen kind of revolutions betray their anarchist elements in, in the Soviet union and Spain, you know, this, this happens over and over again. So I don't think we can simply brush it away and saying, Oh, well, that's just, that's what happened at that point mm-hmm. right and, and and I think we do need to take that seriously and reflect on what that means for for a workers movement or for a socialist movement but at the same time we're going to have intellectual differences right like I don't I don't want to live in a world where we don't mm-hmm. that, that sounds that that sounds just as bad as the not just as bad <laughs> that mm-hmm. sounds. Um, like elements of, of what we're trying to get away from, I guess. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah.
0: Do you guys find that when you kind of like for example, Brian, I uh, I have struggled with I guess the same problem where you're not really entirely sure how to identify when you know push comes to shove when someone's like, Oh, what what are you politically? You know what I mean? Well I mean, well I got Pretty strong sympathies with Marxism and anar- anarchism, and but um, I would say that when like I'm talking to somebody and I'm trying to, in one way or another, win them over to my cause, or if I'm just like arguing because I'm an insufferable prick, <laughs> I've noticed that like the the tools from kind of like just the the Marx for Beginners playbook seem to resonate, like the constant appeal to like kind of you know your your material con- uh, conditions. And where you sit on on class lines has often been much more valuable than um, than anything else. At least when I when I go about my day to day, I'm long out of school. I'm just a regular guy that works in a warehouse now. And so that, that those are the kind of the tools that I'm constantly going going back to if, if a tough conversation um, arises. Do you do you guys both feel like that's a uh, have that kind of like a similar thing, or what, what's what's your go to?
2: Um, I mean, I I think, I think that's right. And I think maybe that's what it is about. Um, Sorry, my computer just did something weird.
0: Um, I hate it when they do fucking weird shit.
2: (laughs) That's because I haven't touched it. So like the screensaver came on. Um, Yeah, I I think kind of the, the basic class analysis that Marxism provides is... Intuitive to most people, I think, right? When you when you yeah. when you lay it out, they go, "Yeah, that makes sense," right? Like even to to a, a a working class person with with reactionary sympathies, when you lay that out without saying, "Hey, this is this is Marxist or this is communism," right? right. They say, "Yeah, that absolutely makes sense," right? That's why the little guy can't catch a break. Yeah, I, I think since 2020, perhaps, we've been in a moment, though, where, and there's, there's been several of these moments, probably since the turn of the century, right, where anarchism is exceedingly more relevant for your average person as well, like with, as, you know, police and prison abolition have have entered, at least somewhat mainstream conversations, right, anarchists have always been police abolitionists, have always been prison abolitionists, and so it's, it's not, it's not a new project for many of us, right? And in fact, like a lot of kind of these abolitionist organizations were, you know, got their start in in anarchist affinity groups. Um, and I think it's no accident there. And so I think we, we do ourselves a disservice if we don't also turn to that tradition, that living tradition, right? To, to discuss, um, I guess, you know, what the function of the state is. and and Marxism also has, you know, a great analysis of the function of the state, but I think anarchism does have kind of that that critical, really biting element to it that that rejection of of authority um, that that Marxism sometimes might lack in certain situations, I guess.
1: Okay. Yeah, we had, um, last episode, we had Graham Culbertson on who runs the podcast Everyday Anarchism, mm. um, which is, I would describe as primarily a gray um, approach to anarchism and, and especially a, an analysis of what that looks like in practical terms, uh, as the name of the podcast suggests in an everyday sense, um, and part of that conversation, and what I anticipated would be part of this one, is I guess the timeliness of 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 conversations and action around around Marxist and anarchist ideology. Um, do you think that that social conditions at this moment are are especially ripe for this sort of um, uh, kind of a, a broader uh, reach for these sorts of ideas?
2: I think, particularly in 2020, I think they were. I think we may have lost our moment. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to be a, a total pessimist, but I, I think I think for a lot of people on kind of the broadly American left, right, which is not the left, um, electing Biden was the victory, right? Mm. Uh, so mm. many of the conversations I think have disappeared um, and, um, abolitionism, at least again, in the mainstream kind of discourse, so many conversations around racial justice have either disappeared or been co-opted by, you know, inherently conservative institutions um, such that, you know, you've got, you know, every university has their Uh, diversity equity and inclusion department that does some real work, but overall can't do much just by virtue of the institution. Meanwhile, the reactionary right is trying to shut that entire project down entirely. Um, and so I, I think, I think we had a moment in 2020, I think we seized onto it. We did good work. There have been people doing important work on local levels. Um, And so, I mean, I think there is there's still the opportunity there, but I don't think it's as much as it was even just a a couple um, years ago. Mm. Not, not to be a downer.
1: No, I was having the same thought the other day that it felt like that particular period, uh, because I was listening to a, a, uh, a, a sort of theory podcast that was taking place during quarantine. And from the standpoint of listening today, a lot of the optimism of that moment as being a time of uh, broader awareness or a time of an inability to ignore certain issues, um, especially when they didn't necessarily impact people, they started impacting everybody, started seeing the way that... All of these things sort of intersected with one another um uh that i think was a time where as you mentioned there was great potential for this literacy to become not only more available but more important uh and appealing to a broader population but as is so often the case it it quickly became gobbled up by um whatever means of recuperation to turn it into something else um, so that it could continue to do, to do the work of capitalism rather than what it's really meaning to do.
2: Yeah. I mean, that said that moment happened and it was real. Right. And so now, like I just taught American political thought this last semester and my students in there, right. They be, became adults. A lot of them during these, this moment. And so, you know as we're reading angela davis and talking about prison abolition not a single student said well what would we do instead or you know whatever the standard response is when you, you mention prison abolition there was there was none of that reaction it was more just heads nodding and and wanting to know more about the project rather than um, kind of just the outright rejection and so i think even if the, the moment passed us to kind of seize that opportunity and make real change, seeds have been planted, mm. right? And, and I think the, the fact that, that those seeds have been planted can't be ignored. That said, other horrible seeds have been planted, right? Where now like to be again on the, the broad left in America means to have this utmost trust of our institutions right this this call to to trust the experts in all instances <laughs> um, right like i think I think that's very dangerous and and, and the, any questioning of expertise, any questioning of of the authorities any any questioning of, of the you know what the deep state or whatever you want to call it um gets met with this this accusation that you oh you must be you must be a right winger oh you must you must support trump right and so to, to push back and, and even even in the, the, the mainstream liberal left whatever you want to call it like reclaim that that critical questioning side of things because it's 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 existed before right and, and I kind of, mean maybe, maybe it depends on who's in office. I, I'm not quite sure um right but but we need to be doing that work again as well I think
0: so. hmm yeah I, I think is i mean n- next year is going to be probably insane in every <laughs> uh feasible way and i think that like with like, mo- like <clears throat> centrist to moderate liberals kind of being like just kind of just kind of like the just the, the 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 party of order and like you know like good grades and like clean living rooms 24/7 for some reason um is like uh is is deeply deeply concerning right we can't we can't culture war and and kind of virtue signal our way out of out of this one and especially considering i think that a lot of people are are i mean frustrated is doesn't do it justice but so many so many of the things that we thought could only happen under you know like a really really republican regime uh, all pretty much happened uh with uh, with within these these past four years you know obviously just you know yeah we it, it, it wasn't enough it wasn't enough to just like remove like donald trump from from the office it, it wasn't enough to just get you know sleepy joe up there uh so he could make you pay your student loans back and not codify roe v wade and the, you know the list goes on and on um so yeah, i'm i don't know about you too but i'm I'm gearing up for a, a potentially uh, con- contentious election season. Although, maybe that's also me being just like a reactionary guy who doesn't know what... <laughs> who just like fucking doesn't know what to do anymore. I'm like, you know... I'm like, on one second, I'm on Doomsday Prepper websites. And the next second, you know what I mean? I'm fucking... I'm hanging out, reading... You know, re- like reading my fucking... Uh, uh, all of my old notes from grad school. Trying to re- figure out where all this went wrong. Um, so just a comment sorry <laughs> i got nothing oh i feel you yeah yeah i because like I, I i don't know i think I, I, like so many people uh i feel like they i feel like they don't even know how to quantify their own politics because of that culture war fodder that's kind of like been like well you trust science don't you you know what i mean it was like yeah but like what I don't know what that means anymore. Cause like science gave us like pesticides and, and, and bombs and fucking all kinds of crazy shit that I don't trust or want to put any of my faith in as an institution. Um, and yeah, I, I, I see it day in and day out where I'm just like, well, I don't really, there's, I, I don't know what, what there really is to, to, to be done here, especially with, um, people not particularly optimistic for the, just traditional electoral two-party politics, even though, for for most people, that's all they that's all they really know.
1: Yeah. Um,
2: I, I said everything.
1: I said story. everything. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I think that, that I think, perhaps, you know, the the moment we're in. I'm sure that this has been said before, but I'm, I, I think that this particular what feels like a crisis moment, I uh, infer to all of us um, may be that sort of point where at least the youth, you know, I teach as well. And my impression is that the youth are apparently kind of seeing The emperor as naked, um, and recognizing this sort of ratchet effect phenomenon, where the left or you know nominal left um, will promise these sort of reforms, uh, and in fact do nothing, and arguably make things worse under the guise of you know. Uh, Pinkwashing or uh, homo nationalism and and right. and, and uh, exacerbate their military policies uh, under the un, under the auspices of feminism or something like this. Um, it seems to me that the the youth are especially keen on being cynical about that sort of leadership. Um, in a way that, for a long time, the far left has only been had that sort of cynicism and awareness Um, and at this moment in particular I think you mentioned Angela Davis and for a long time I think for me at least she was the first in America to bring Palestinian issues to my Mm. doorstep. and and now even though that has never stopped being an issue it was one that people were pretty comfortable ignoring or focusing on other things until now it's impossible to ignore And I think your areas of focus in abolition um, make the 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 invocation of Angela Davis especially important right now. But also because not only does she frame Palestine as a feminist issue and as a racial issue, but also as an abolitionist issue, because um, of this this bi-directional influence between um, the state politics of Israel and their military apparatus and their police apparatus and its influence on American policing and the prison system here and vice versa. And the fact that this sort of open-air prison um, terminology is not just idiomatic. It's in fact... Pretty accurate when you think about prisoning uh, 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 the prisoner carceral system in more of a Foucauldian sense. Um, I guess that's also part of why I'm thinking about the timeliness of this sorts of conversations. What do you think, Ryan?
2: Yeah, I mean, absolutely, right? Like, it's all connected, as, as you're saying. Um, the 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 open-air prison of Gaza is the open-air prison of the reservation system, mm-hmm. is the open-air prison of the South African homelands, is the open-air prison of um, the death camps under, in Nazi Germany. And this is not to equate any of these regimes with each other, mm-hmm. but the logics at play there, right? And the fact that we're calling them all open-air prisons, as you're saying, they are prisons. They are absolutely prisons. The carceral logic continues there, right? The, the corralling of a surplus population of an undesirable surplus population is the function of these, these carceral systems, whether that's, um, reservations or a federal penitentiary or Gaza or the West Bank, right? Like that's exactly what the function is. It's, it's the elimination of a surplus population, either by by wiping it out of sight or by literally wiping it off the face of the earth, which is what's mm-hmm. happening in Gaza right now.
1: And it's been interesting to see that, that I think disillusionment, uh, I think that you've probably seen, political discourse around college students are all super, you know, against our current, you know, Biden administration. What's up with that? And not, and, and, and quick to dismiss it as college students just, as has always been the case, you know, since at least the hippie movement, quick to dismiss college students as just not having the global awareness uh, or common sense to understand what's really going on. Uh, that sort of infantilizing of, of young people which has has been the, this tacit dismissal of uh, social and political movements for as long as I'm aware of um, uh, and not recognizing that these kids can now vote or these young adults can now vote and or not vote and um, uh, that rather than, Ignoring them as this aberration, um, recognizing that there there's something discursive happening there, especially because colleges have for a long time become, and especially now, I think, as you mentioned, these colleges are being colleges and these departments, which you know, my area of study is DEIJ, and and. I'm quite aware of how these have been misappropriated and misapplied um, and especially in universities. Uh, meanwhile, they're still being attacked and, and, and in a lot of cases policies are being made against their implementation in universities because universities have these reputations <laughs> from both ends from from the left, their situations of power and uh, maintenance of, heteropatriarchal white supremacist capitalist systems and especially because most of them are essentially corporations at this point right. They're right there are these ideological strongholds that are trying to brainwash the youth into being tolerant of marginalized populations
0: while all, while also being warriors in the boardroom too which is also a weird Overlap was like you have like like the like the woke the woke economics or business schools too, which is uh, I like okay <laughs> if that's what you want to that's what you want to go into dead for player. <clears throat> um, sorry, but yeah, I mean that that seems like that yeah that's that that has been increasingly the project for for years is is blatant blatant manipulation and smear campaigns and the uh like dismissal of. Of any, of, uh, frankly, any real leftist challenge to, to the status quo, we're we're at a point now where there's infinite leftist podcasts, there's infinite journals, there's inf, there's there seems to be no shortage of, of people on wearing the black and red team colors on, on Twitter or on Instagram, on TikTok, constantly like, you know, screaming out into the into the void. I guess I, I'm curious what if you both have any thoughts too on like um because evan kind of like you said like you know uh all all the years of of trying to like downplay dismiss or ridicule these ideas um are are they on are are they about to like all all backfire horribly or is this just going to be kind of like another cycle where where the state and capitalism find you know new ways to kind of Sell it back to you. Quell dissent. Expand the carceral state. Right? You know the police and military budgets seem to, you know, they they, they appear out of out of thin air while you're constantly <laughs> told there's there's no money for for any real social services that would solve housing or, um, uh, you know, any any issues with um, people accessing health care as well. So like, what I'm I'm curious, does it does it feel like we're at, towards the act towards the end of something? Or do you do you both for kind of foresee the the same cycle of, uh, yeah, just of capitalism in the state reasserting their power, selling certain ideas back to you, and again just, just expanding their the like just expanding the carceral state as a whole.
2: I think I think the university is dying a slow, slow death. I don't know that we're at the end of something or not, but we're on we're on a decline, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And this has been the rights project ever since they no longer had an absolute stranglehold on the university as an institution. Um, You know, like like you're saying, since since that moment in the '60s when. When they did become associated with things like the free speech movement, the anti-war movement, um, I think at, at that point we've we've seen that attack increase over time, right? So that right these, these hearings that they're having with the you know elite college presidents about free speech on campus and anti-Semitism, while those are absolutely real issues, the the function of these hearings, the function of any of this is the dismantling of the university as a center for free thought, as a center for, for critical thought, right? And I don't think the university is gonna save us by any means, right? Again, it's, it's a conservative institution. It's, you know, we talk about the neoliberal universities. you said, they're, they're basically corporations at this point, but they do represent a space where we can be doing some critical work. It's often contained and corralled and, and co-opted, recuperated for the service of capital, but when I'm in a classroom talking to a bunch of working class kids who are who thought they just showed up because they needed a degree to get that job, right? Like we're having real conversations and, and we're having conversations that are going to produce ripple effects throughout their lives. And I think that's, you know, our, our power as, as educators is, is there. I, I don't think it's in writing the next research paper that three people are going to read, right? <laughs> I, I think we we do have power, and I think the right is is keenly aware of that, and that's why effort after effort is being made to shut down any sort of critical conversations, right? Because because they they can't sustain that. Now the the Democrats can can hold on to it; they can co-opt it, right? It's part of their brand so they'll they'll give us fascism with a with a diverse face right you talk about pink washing earlier um, they're they're more than happy to do that but the rights brand seems to be the dismantling of the university quad university
0: i guess i for one that's i thank you for the for that (laughs) good answer good answer um yeah because i you know i i i kept thinking about how like you know i feel i feel like my like right when i was getting ready to to like go go to college or um yeah like i i don't you know i uh i i love and appreciate my parents uh intentions dearly but they i they were not like yeah yeah you get in there and fucking you get in there and become a Marxist or whatever. They were deeply concerned just kind of with, with class replication and employment prospects. Mm -hmm. And so like, it seems as though like, uh, uh, you know, the genie's out of the bottle with that. Most people are aware that they're probably having a, a bachelor's degree in something really isn't going to make or break. their already limited opportunities in life. And so, with the university with the university dying, do you, do you think that there's also a project too to like to try and, and reclaim it to make it more of these just again like you know uh, almost spaces just kind of for like wealthy children to kind of have their their class replicated or do you think that that's something that's only going to stay like in the like you know like your your ivy leagues for for example
2: yeah i mean i think that the i think is that there's a good chance that what we think of as the university will remain for the wealthy, right? It will remain at these elite institutions um, and some, you know, moderate to elite institutions. Um, um, yeah, and I, I think it's no accident that it's, it's not just with the, the arrival of the free speech movement, the hippies and anti-war movement, but it's with the arrival of working class people through the GI Bill with, mm. with the arrival uh, of people of color into university classrooms, both um, sitting in the classroom and standing at the front of it, right? Like this is a concerted effort to, um, uh, I think to maintain power for this white supremacist project, for this project of class domination, right? To to put the rest of us back in our place. Um, And so, I mean, I don't know if we were ever right in kind of uh, attaching ourselves to the university as an emancipatory project, Um, but it was, I think there's no harm in kind of stealing that space when it's made an option, right? Like using those resources that we have, I think we're gonna have to come up with with new systems um, if this doesn't last. And this has been just such a short period in this institution's life that this has been allowed, right? The university has been a place to, to replicate not only class, but the same ideas over and over, um, right? But if I think, you know, when, when Marx talks about modernity and he talks about capitalism as kind of this ever-changing um, system, right, where all that is solid melts into air, that's what we, we see in the university so that, it has to al- always be changing and revolutionized, right? Whether that's through the admission of working class people and people of color or through things like, like uh, diversity initiatives, all of that stuff's happening, but it's always in the service of capital, but also can't be sustained by capital, can't be contained, right? This is why we hit these crisis moments because it has to change, but it can't deal with the change. That's, that's why capitalism has, has crises, right? Right. Um, I don't know where I was going with this, but, but yeah,
0: that's okay. It's a it's it's a it's a long form, long winded uh, podcast. You know, we it's a our like our like seven or eight listeners. They're fucking they're gonna be pumped. Mm-hmm. So, and right. I think that's kind of the Hegelian
1: dynamic here that you're describing, Brian. Where we've seen these changes that we think are. Going to fix something, mm. and temporarily we get the impression that they do, uh, or they fix some things, uh, but then they become kind of synthesized um, into replicating sometimes the most problematic of those original theses. So to take your example of, of focusing, uh, rightly focusing on um, making sure that we have more women, people of color, um, people in classroom seats and in front of the classroom and in administrative positions and so on. Uh, That's a good endeavor, but um, as you, implied earlier with the diversity, equity, inclusion departments, there's often only so much they can really do to participate in change at a structural level within those institutions. Um, I was listening to a podcast um, not too long ago uh, with two of my favorite modern uh Queer and feminist theorists Jasbir Puar and, and Jennifer Nash, and they were doing kind of a I don't whatever uh, semi-centennial analysis of um, these two feminist anthologies that are kind of foundational to modern Black feminism, uh, which is uh, which were. Um, all the men were black, all the uh, whites were women, or all the, yeah, all the women were white, all the blacks were men, but some of us were brave, and uh, this bridge uh, of my back, uh, these two black feminist anthologies are these two, like, uh, foundations of intersectional feminism. mm mm-hmm. And they were looking at these and, and having the kind of modern day perspective and recognizing that at those times, um, these uh, both of these anthologies focused so much on how acquiring systems, or acquiring positions of, of influence in universities was going to be the primary structural change necessary to uh, ameliorate so much of our structural racism and, and sexism and heteropatriarchy in this country. And looking at it from today's perspective, they're recognizing that too often they ended up being in this position of replication rather than liberation or emancipation. Um, and recognizing that that w- was not, in fact, the,
2: the recipe. I mean, and I think while those anthologies were coming out right, you had like people like, like Audre Lorde, right, saying, hey, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Right. Right. Becoming the provost of this university is not going to dismantle the university, right? It's going to place you closer to power and you are going to function as power functions, um, right? You know, and and I mean, and again to go back to Marx, Mark, Marx, right? In the, oh, geez, was it like the 1872 prologue to the Manifesto? Probably wrong. He says right that that the working class cannot grab hold of the the ready-made state machinery and and wield it to its ends, or I'm probably slaughter that quote, but. But it's the same sentiment, right? That that we've always been aware of this. That that simply occupying these positions cannot possibly be enough, right? Simply taking hold of an oppressive apparatus is not going to undo oppression. It will make us complicit in it, right? That and that's that's why I think, you know, we're, we're you're talking about kind of these these movements over time, and we look at like there, there was a point in time when, when power did not know what to do with queerness, right. Mm-hmm. And, and it represented a threat to power, but then, okay, well, we can get marriage equality. We can reproduce the nuclear family through same sex couples. We can integrate people into the military, whether that's, um, that's, uh, gay, gay men and lesbians, whether that's trans folks, we can, we can integrate them into this apparatus. And now suddenly this is something we can handle right and so it's the solution can can never be simply taking part in these already existing institutions right the right. solution can't right. be not that marriage equality is a bad thing right equality is is equality that's that's great but when that becomes our end goal is to be a part of a, of a deeply flawed system rather than using our own positionality our own experience Um, our own theory building in order to kind of at the very least alter, if not just blow up these institutions, then we we are just going to be repeating these same cycles.
1: And, and too often in those, and this is why modern radical queer theory is so uh, much about non-normativity and how uh, this was a misdirection of those energies. uh, And in fact, kind of a diffusal uh, or a bypassing of those, Revolutionary energies in the in the, uh, the gay liberation movement, where as as like the ACT UP uh, movement was primarily about universal health care, mm-hmm. and then it became sort of nuanced or kind of a like finesse into this. Well, you can get health care if you get married, um, and and that diffused the healthcare conversation became more of a let's be make you respectable members of society by making you as as normative as as possible um although of course marriage was part of the bargain as well it became let's not talk about that here's we'll give you this much instead and kind of repackaging it just like um hate crime legislation became part and parcel of greater police power, militarization of police um, and right, just as we're now seeing in in a lot of the kind of propaganda campaigns in the Middle East where you're saying, look at how inclusive our military is. (laughs) Um, That that same kind of homo nationalism where you're seeing the discourse where people are like, well, people in Palestine don't want Queer people around. Uh, well, you know, gay marriage isn't legal in Israel either, but that kind of rhetoric is being used to squash conversations about what liberation can look like. Um, just more of that pink washing we were talking about. Um, so yeah, this the, the the it's it's I I especially because I'm an educator and around young people who kind of always give me hope about the future i'm endlessly fascinated if i can kind of step back and just look at it as an observer fascinated by the the mechanism of incorporation and recuperation and kind of revision that happens with any kind of potentially revolutionary moment
2: absolutely yeah.
1: Can you talk a little bit about how you got? Uh, you're the one of, the, one of, or the founding editors of one this, of, yeah, one of, um, of uh, making abolitionist worlds and abolish carceral society um, of the abolition collective. Can you talk a little bit about that project?
2: Yeah, so I mean that started out, you know, many many years ago, like over a decade ago. I'm not even sure when, um, with myself, um, friend of the show, Sean Parson and Eli Meyerhoff. We were involved in um, like anarchist spaces in political science conferences, right? We would, we would set up, I, I, we were on some mailing list like anarchist academics or something. And, and we ended up setting up multiple panels at a handful of conferences um, to do kind of anarchist work within political science. You know and we'd be talking like you know it'd be really great if there was some radical publishing outlets within political science as a discipline because we just was lacking um you know the most kind of critical um venue within political science was probably new political science which was an outgrowth of kind of the new left and hippie movement and and then kind of a, a push back against um in many ways kind of um, the attempt to kind of quantify political science. I think that's also part of the dynamic there, but to retain a normative core in political science. Um, but but that felt, now that there's people doing good work there, and I believe they've changed their name now to, I believe, critical political science, um, but it, it didn't feel like us. It didn't feel like our home, right? And so we wanted to create some sort of anarchist-friendly, radical-friendly journal in political science. And there were kind of, you know, examples in, in critical um, criminology and radical criminology, I think is the journal name. Um, mm. In geography, they have uh, ACME, I believe is the journal. So there, there was a, a handful of other disciplines had these types of outlets. And we were, we were thinking, you know, that'd be really cool if that existed for us. You know, like kind of like, you know, you're, you know, hanging out with your friends and you're like dreaming and scheming you know like oh yeah one day we could make that and then uh after joel olson passed away there was a memorial conference for him at northern arizona university um, where sean was teaching at the time then and still is um and we had we'd all met up there and we were talking about we're like you know especially like in in memory of, of joel's project you know um the, the abolition of white democracy. Um, really talking about yeah, we 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 do need to actually do something about this. And so at at that point, it was um, some other people started kind of joining this these conversations, um, namely uh, Jasmine Yarish, um, Andrew Dilts, and uh, Geo Mar. We were, we were all kind of talking, and and Andrew and Geo had much more established roots at this point, they were, they were already in tenure track jobs. Um, Geo has since been pushed out of his um, and is doing more kind of um, alternative abolitionist education stuff in Philadelphia, but you know, they, they had networks already established too, and they, they had done some, some real work beforehand. And so use, using kind of those networks, using their vision, our vision, bouncing ideas off of each other we ended up thinking, you know what? No, it's not about political science. This is not like some sort of venue to kind of uh, access our careerist goals. You know, this is about something much bigger. And so it became the um, Abolition, a journal of insurgent politics, right? And and it expanded then from, from the three of us to the six of us to, I don't know, maybe a dozen, to I I think it's it's like 50 people involved in the collective now I I, it's 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 something much bigger than any of us could have done or imagined on our own right and you know we a Facebook page got started up that has I just checked like 70,000 likes or follows or whatever they are um, which is enormous right Uh, I mean I've been in bands where you have like 12 followers and it's your, your friends and partners are following the Facebook page, you know, so so 70,000 people interested in in what we're saying and wanting to be a part of that conversation. Um, and, and one of the kind of goals for the the journal was that it was always going to be grounded in movements. It wasn't going to be an academic journal, right? So we wanted any reviews that took place to actually, involve people in movements we wanted people inside of prisons being involved in this both in the in, in the creative aspects and in the review process and and, it, and then in, in consumption of it as well right so a, a big part of our project was making sure that we could get it inside prison walls um, and so it, it it took off and it really it has a life of its own I, I've become less and less involved as, as I've had more and more children myself um, and and you know, acquired a tenure track job and, and have, have all of the responsibilities, but it's still, you know, in, in many ways, kind of this thing that I'm, I'm deeply connected to um, be- because of this, this project. And I think abolition meant different things to each of us going into it. You know, there were people working towards kind of um, animal abolitionist projects, you know, um, for, for animal rights or um, animal liberation. Uh, environmentalist projects, prison abolition, police abolition, um, abolition of capitalism, obviously, of whiteness, all all of these, this this constellation of kind of centers of power, right? And and I think that that diversity in what it meant to us and in the work we were doing, my experiences had primarily been around labor organizing and as well as, you know, some stuff around immigration rights and then early on with the black lives matter movement, but um, you know, we were all coming from different places and had all these different resources at our disposal. And I think that's what allowed these, these, they're, their books essentially, right? They're not, they're not even really journal issues. They're, they're these, these books that came about from this, um, you know, and I think we just had a special issue come out on abolition and spirituality. I say a, a special issue, they're they're all special issues. Again, they're all standalone <laughs> projects. Um, and they, right, they've got artwork in them. They've got something more like a typical academic article. They've got brief, um, I think we call them interventions that are the, short, the shorter kind of movement-based pieces. Um, and it, it's just been something that I, I've been really proud of seeing happen, even as I've taken a step back. Um, I haven't been hands-on involved with, with like the journal itself since the second issue, um, the um, making abolitionist worlds. right. And so um, but it just it's just been something that I, I think feels like to us at least that we were we were part of this discourse that was existing in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder, right? And, and people started talking about abolition. We were one of those resources that that was there then, um, and I, I'm not trying to take credit for anything at all. Or there's there's no causal relationship there, but I think having having been present to be there and to be a resource, um, and to be to be a venue for this type of thinking has been crucial.
0: Yeah, i re- I remember I remember following the, the the page back when I still had a Facebook. Um, I don't know if you re- remember remember this or had any part of this. There was a moment where I believe one of the admins, uh, like took took the page down briefly. I I don't remember when or, or why. Uh, I'm trying to fucking jog my memory. I know I'm getting this a little derailed here, but I think it was. It might have been around the time, which again, around the time they like where. Uh, there was like a perceived witch hunt online for anybody mm. who was like an anarchist or or had any sympathies to it, where like people were like kind of self censoring, which I, I I I can't remember the specifics exactly because again like that witch hunt is kind of always happened. There's always yeah, there's all there's always there's always feds and cops in the comments being like, hey, does anybody know? Does anybody know where the bombings at today? I just want to <laughs> come, you know, or whatever. Like, um, but uh yeah i do you, Do you remember what why or what i'm talking about brian I'm, that, I'm trying to like
2: like that seems like vaguely familiar to me because
0: I, I thought i thought that one of the admins of the page specifically took it down for like their own protection and autonomy especially like especially like once like it was like essentially like high schoolers common knowledge that all facebook does is sell all your public information yeah. to law enforcement um I don't know I don't, I didn't mean to get us off, off, off track there no, the, I'm the, like trying the, to
2: scroll through the like the all old, these old emails now trying to jog my memory as well
0: yeah I can't I can't remember what happens because yeah I uh, yeah because I, I followed that one I, I remember the I also remembered the fucking, the new the new journal for political science as well back when I was still at naU um, but obviously that that one not as interesting mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Sorry, I'm no, I'm just like scrolling through my old emails now. That's not useful to anyone. No, I'll, take, I'll uh,
1: take the moment just to let the listeners know that these texts are available through Common Notions. Um, yeah. and I believe also available on Open Journal Systems, which is a new platform to me, but one I'm pretty excited about.
2: Yeah, so um the, the texts from any of our, our publications is it's freely accessible online. Um, and you can, if you want a print copy, you can get it from Common Notions or you go to abolitionjournal.org. Um, and I think you can get, yeah, there's, there's a link and you click on journal and it says order and print from Common Notions or read online via open journal systems. Um, and that, that was also kind of important to, to several of us to make sure not only that there was free access to the text itself, but that we were using open source software to do it. Um, right. Um, yeah, I think be consistent so, throughout the process of production with, with what we were doing.
1: Yeah, sort of practicing. Uh, just like the Anarchist Library has continued to be a great resource. Um, especially, you know, I tend to be a pretty tactile reader, so I usually like to have hands on copies. Yeah. Um, but it's always good to have access to PDFs, especially for research purposes and also just to kind of like preview and with the recognition that these are more broadly available um, and not totally profit driven.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I, and then in addition to the the journal and the Facebook page, we actually held a, we didn't call it a conference. We called it a convergence. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, that was in uh, Minneapolis back in 2017. Um, and that it was the theme was abolish border imperialism, and it was it was pretty cool. It was a lot of, um, you know, there were there were things that you might think of as more like a typical academic panel with people giving a talk and Q and A. Then there were more kind of workshop oriented elements as well. So it was you know similar to like an anarchist book fair in a lot of ways and how it was run. Um, and there was supposed to be one in Toronto in 2020, but the pandemic uh, kind of indefinitely postponed that. I think there's, there's still talk of doing something and there's talk, I think, of doing more kind of local-based um, in-person organizing.
1: Would you be able to briefly talk about um, your involvement in... Punk and if there is or is not a relationship between these two parts of your life?
2: Oh, there's absolutely a relationship. Um you know, and I I I tell my students kind of this this story as well, because we, you know, we talk about, you know, the, the interaction between art and, and theory and politics and stuff. And I, I always talk to them like when I was in I assume junior high, I think, um, I heard Rage Against the Machine, right? Mainstream band. Uh, but a very uh, out in the open radical political messages to their songs, right? And they're, they're having a they have a song on the radio about how the cops and the Klan are one and the same, and they're killing people because of that, right? And it was like mind blowing to hear this music on the radio, and then you find out okay, it's also like not just a bunch of white guys playing this like really heavy rock music, right? And it was just this really cool experience uh, for me, like seeing this message played by these types of people, and so that was like my introduction, I think, to to like political music, right? And at the same time, there was also kind of um, you know bands like like Green Day and The Offspring were like getting radio airplay, and that was like my introduction to to I guess what you would might call punk or pop punk or whatever it was. Um, and so very quickly dove deeper and deeper and deeper, like, oh, I want music that makes me feel like this, but I want music that has, like, these types of messages as well, you know? And so as a, as a young kid, um, hearing hearing punk music and hearing hardcore music, like, it, it scratched that itch that I had, right? Like, like, metal didn't so much do it for me, although I, I have an appreciation for metal now, but, like... It it just never it was never my my thing, you know. But 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 punk and hardcore really worked for me, and and so, you know, for going from those bands to, you know, like one of my favorite bands from the '90s was this band Fifteen, and I don't even know like if people know them today at all. But they yeah, were yeah, making, like, yeah. They were making like poppy music, with like very like, story-driven lyrics that were also deeply political and universal, right? But it was, like, particular stories um, from the mind of Jeff Ott and from his life in in the East Bay um, that that resonated so deeply, you know? And so, like, his music and that that band, like, they made me want to just, like, learn more about everything, right? Like, oh, well, what's going on here? In the same way that I think, like, that hip-hop did for a lot of people. Um, and and hip-hop was always like in the background of of my life but it was never like the main thing I was into but it was like the stories that that 15 was was telling and then a few years later several years later there's this band called the broadways from Chicago who were very influenced by 15 and crimp shrine um who were doing a, a very similar thing and they had they had three vocalists which I just thought was the coolest thing um and they're they're you know, telling stories about like cops beating up their friends and they're, you know, talking about um, kind of the school to prison pipeline in these like catchy kind of, um, you know, not but not quite pretty radio friendly pop punk. It was, it was kind of rough around the edges still. Um, and, it, you know, just like it just made me want to learn. And so when I, I got to college, I, you know, like I'm just devouring all this material, wanting to, to know more about how and why the world works the way it does and, and I, I think it was punk right like punk is what what brought me there um, and also the cool thing about punk was that anyone could do it right at least that was that was the message and so like yeah I started playing bass when I was in high school um, I played you know in in a couple different bands in college and then when I was in grad school I played in a couple bands um, and it was always, it just made sense to me that that's what I would be doing on top of whatever political work I was doing or intellectual work I was doing. They were all part of the same thing, right? Like as a human being, these were the needs I had and, and they were met in those avenues.
0: That's awesome, man. I had a, I had an older bandmate burn me the, the uh, Krim shrine, Krim shrine mm-hmm. and 15 CD because my, my high school car had a CD player in it. So Yeah funny yeah incredible shit you're like does anybody still talk about 15 yeah i think actually i think our our friends at the kings of punk podcast also like had a brief discussion about them on an episode a couple weeks ago too so they're still they're still in vogue to an extent um and that's yeah i love love hearing that
2: yeah and and some of it sounds so like dated and especially like the later stuff is like it's it can be hard to listen to right (laughs) like
1: yeah
2: oh So it's not something I would like give to someone like, "Oh, you want to know about like punk and politics? Here, listen to this."
0: Yeah, but well, I, I mean, like, like, what's the alternative there? Just, just give them like a disrupt like record or whatever here. This is super approachable. Try this one out. Yeah, <laughs>
2: yeah and that and that's the thing. Like, that's why Fifteen worked for me Embi- because it was like I liked like a lot of pop punk, right? Yeah. And so it it worked.
0: Yeah, um, perfect, perfect intro band.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I think I think people expect. um, more polished production these days, perhaps. Um.
1: It depends who you talk to, because I think there's a certain prejudice against polished production. Mm. A lot of, like, what I would consider, like, capital P or H, punk and hardcore audiences, where the more polished it is, the more suspect it is. Oh, being for sure. Kind of, uh, a, quote, the, the term du jour industry plant. Um <laughs> So if it, I feel like there's there's been this sort of uh, attempt to return to the we recorded this on a four track in a, a garage while the car was running, um, <laughs> uh, aesthetic, yeah. Which I happen to be a fan of. I like the grainy, like this cassette has been run to death before you recorded on it. I like that sound generally. Yeah. In fact. Uh, not to spoil any upcoming releases, but Dylan sent me some recordings a while back and it had been so um, condensed by the text message process (laughs) that I thought it was extremely Um, lo-fi. Just like that kind of distortion where the distortion isn't necessarily from the instruments, but from this uh, recording process itself. And I was like, wow, that's really like... I'm, I'm i'm digging that aesthetic of totally blown out speakers um and he's like oh yeah that's not what it sounds like at all <laughs> it's in another format
0: yeah we it's uh, it, i mean we still like recorded it live and like all the symbols like bleed in with like the guitars mm-hmm. and the vocals. so like it is still like intentionally and i was the only one actually who was like hey should we clean this up a little bit and everyone was like what no you're out of the band yeah dude pretty much i felt like i like really i like might have showed showed my cards a little too hard there <laughs> yeah, i was like normal. hey like i was like hey i don't know maybe we should maybe we should can have this like mixed this? and mastered a little more i'm sorry what'd you say can we add some saxophone to this yeah yeah Hey, anyway, i was hoping maybe we could like add, yeah add some saxophone and wear pork pie hats um <laughs> just you know don't don't mind me
1: uh i think the broadway's had saxophone is that right
0: no, I don't. No.
2: no, so like part of the broadways had come from uh, slapstick, who I believe did have sax and at least one trumpet. Okay, that's where my
1: cross pollinations happening. Yeah,
2: it's like that Chicago music scene in the '90s is just like very fascinating to me. Um, and I got I got I a remember. chance to play at uh, the Fireside Bowl in Chicago one time, which was kind of a dream come true. Um, wow!
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. With- I remember- playing with a touring ska band one time and and they were preemptively uh defensive they're like we're ska in a conversation to me there's they're like we're ska not punk with horns we're ska i was like yeah i wouldn't have made that distinction myself but i, I appreciate okay, your, okay. Yeah. Actually, stylistic, stylistic chauvinism here
2: i uh it was in a ska band actually that i, I played at the, the fireside so Ska has a, has a special place in my heart as well.
1: Yeah, I'm, I am a fan of a very particular type of Ska and then mm-hmm. uh, have an aversion to most other types.
0: Brian, are you comfortable sharing what band that was?
1: Oh,
2: so this is just part of my long journey. This was a band called the Israelites that were okay. a Christian Ska and reggae band. Oh, okay. Um, it's a traditional Ska um, that I had... I had seen them play when I was in high school and they were based in LA. So when I went to college um, in Southern California, I ended up, I would like fill in on bass for them and then ended up playing keyboard and going on tour. And I think I'm on one recording. Um,
1: And you're on their picture on last FM. I just found it. Oh my goodness.
2: That is hilarious. Um, Okay. okay. I'm going to Google that as well. Um, (laughs) But yeah, it was a, um, it was a fun time and like we you know we did a lot of like kind of covers of classic jamaican stuff um and then and then originals as well um yeah it was, it was fun it was, and it was fun as a college student getting to go on tour you yeah. know and and coming back and like that was my story of what did you do this summer oh i went on tour with this band um, lived in a van for a month you know it was it was, it was cool
0: yeah that's uh that sounds that sounds perfect. That's actually one of my only regrets from college is like I just like wasn't playing in any bands. So I was just like doing fucking nothing all summer. Um yeah, anyway. Yeah. But so, just yeah, I uh yeah, just I feel like I lost so much time but that's okay you know what The yeah, 31 year old man making up for it now going on tour putting everybody in his life in a weird spot all the time <laughs> it's been like hey it's like well i gotta go uh, i gotta go make up for some shit that i should have done a long time ago everyone's, <laughs> everyone's like you have a job and uh, like rent to pay you know i'm always like all right we'll see you guys later <laughs> so sowing wild oats yeah yeah, yeah, St- stages, not ages, is what my is that's, that's what my AP psychology teacher used to say in high school, and I uh, think about it every day. He did also also he also was like super into like, especially when like the Coney 2012 thing went down or whatever. He was like, we got to send the U.S. Marines in there or whatever. I was like, what are you talking no. about? It's really weird. I don't know why I just remembered that right now, but um. <laughs> Shout because out to you, believe, you still believe that we should send the military in? Yeah, dude. Call. You know, dude. You know me, man. I'm fucking. I'm. I'm Mr. Interventionist. You know, those are those are my politics summed up in every conflict.
1: <laughs> we want to shift to uh, underrated gems. Now that we've covered some underrated gems from
0: Brian's past. Yeah, sure, sure. I I only ever have one or two an episode, Evan. If you wanna, you wanna go first. We can go first. Sure, I have three, which Jesus believe Christ. or not,
1: I whittled down. <laughs> uh, but I'll go through them fast. Um, one of them is this kind of. I think they, they consider them themselves DB, but they're pretty grindy to me. Uh, it's a San Antonio band called Amygdala, um, which is. Uh, you know, they're punk, but they're quite fast and, and, and grindy to me. Um, um, really great band, very upfront about their politics. Um, and uh, yeah, I just saw them at 51 West a long time ago, back when that was a thing, and was a, kind of a, a changed man afterward. Um, also, uh, this band called Nazi Dust, oh yeah which um, <laughs> shares some members with uh, or at least a member with merchandise um and Nazi dust is an interesting one they're kind of hardcore but they're really have a blackened aesthetic so um, it kind of sounds like that kind of blackened t- also pretty deep I would say but very uh, lo fi recordings um think think they're maybe second to last release was put out on youth attack and that's when i found out about them but you know that was 2009 and i and um, and uh they, they're rarely talked about today as far as i can tell um but yeah uh, i consider them to be underrated another one that you kind of find you as an i uh find when it comes up in the youtube recommendations and you just think nazi dust is a really cool name um and then lastly is a new ish band uh, from Phoenix. So my bias is showing, but this band is called Yellow Cake. Um, and uh, man, I just remember when I came back to Tucson after living in Flagstaff in Boston for a while, I saw them play in this tiny bar, which is potentially not open anymore. And just, I, it, I, I, they blew my mind. It was like hearing, discharge slash motorhead um in this tiny tiny space and uh yeah the first thing that came to mind was this This sounds like motorhead to me but with a, a lot of discharge in there very good band it was one of these moments where i'm like these people need to have been playing together for 20 years already to sound this good but it's definitely a new band um i'm sure they all have i know that they all have plenty of experience before this band but yellow cake is uh, I would not say underrated. It's just not yet rated, and I'm putting everybody on.
0: Yeah, yeah, they're 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 incredible. I I would second that. Uh, Brian, oh, yeah, you
1: just you just toured with them.
0: We did we did just tour them. I got to I got to watch them every night for two weeks. Oh, It was, awesome. it was fun. Yeah, I I love I love them all dearly. Um, except Raul. No, I'm just kidding. Raul's fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so Brian, those are mine brian you're up any it, literally um, any band you can think of that you think okay of. i've got i've got
2: an old one and a newish one okay and, and again i i'm not sure if this old one if people do talk about them still or if they are appreciated uh dylan and i are highly
1: anti-social so underrated is based entirely on like social media comment sections <laughs> yeah. so we are not having our finger on the pulse necessarily
2: yeah so there was this band in like the like early 90s, late 80s, maybe, called Fuel. Okay. They're not the, like, radio rock band Fuel that was later in the 90s. Um, But they were an incredible band. Um, Sarah Kirsch was in the band. I think it was her first band. I don't know if you um, know her work at all. Um, But to me, they were, like, sonically somewhere between Fugazi and those like first couple hot water music records oh, okay shit. Um, they're like kind of like a west coast bridge between those bands in in a way um and it just it's like stuff that i'm just really into um and it's it, it's good stuff and i think they only they i don't even know if they actually put out an album while they were together or if like they the, the album that exists was just kind of a compilation of like the smaller releases they put out
1: oh that's my favorite stuff yeah but yeah
2: that- just just an incredible band. And I think like an influential band in their own right, but I don't know if, if people today still even like know about them. So
1: Sarah Kirsch was in John Henry West. Is that right? That's because that's another one of my underrated this for a later or, date.
2: Yeah, I think so. She was in, I mean, a bunch of bands. <laughs> so yeah. Trying to, um, I
1: was trying to pin one down. Yeah. You yeah. Know. Um,
2: Yeah, that that sounds right. Um, I I want to say the last band she was in before she passed was, um, I think she was in Batter Brains or Botter Brains. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, Who they were incredible. I don't know if you ever got a chance to see them at all, but just. Unfortunately
1: not, but have listened.
2: Uh, Yeah, um, they were great. Um, And then so then the newish they're not all that new, I guess, but they're they're putting stuff out still. Is this band out of Iowa called Closet Witch?
1: Oh yes. Oh
2: yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Again, I don't know if people know. <laughs> this at all.
1: Oh, I don't either. But uh, I will. S- this probably will come out after the publication, but I definitely put them on one of my year-end list publications this year.
2: Yeah, they're. I mean, yeah, they they just had an, uh, an album come out this year, right? Um, yeah,
1: Kira Scaro. Yeah,
2: just just an incredible band, and I I have a a shirt of, of theirs that I wear all the time, and, and it's got like a like Godzilla made out of like plant matter. If that wow. makes sense, <laughs> and people <are> always <laughs> like, oh, that's a cool shirt, and I'm like, right. it's a cool band, and it's it's <laughs> it's, it's great. Um, but I I saw them play um, just one time. When I was living out in the Illinois-Iowa border and they, they'd come through town pretty often and I saw them play one time and they just blew me away with the energy they brought to this like small room in the back of a bar you know and just the fastest songs you can imagine um and like played so precisely too I, I always appreciate like kind of these like grind or power violence bands whatever they are that like their instruments so well and so fast because i cannot play that fast at all yep. um and it just just blew me away so they're they're definitely i think if not an underrated gym they're surely a gym
1: have you listened to their um they had a four-way split that i wrote about a few years ago and it was closet witch race trader neckbeard death camp and who was the fourth hagathorn, which I think shares members with one of the, with one of those bands? Uh it was a four-way split on to live a lie and uh yeah, killer set of bands. Very strange like collaboration, but but really excellent.
2: Like it makes sense in a way though, right? Like that's yeah, oh, it's oh
1: yeah, politically it was just Hagathorn is kind of this one of the <laughs> those other bands, black metal side project. Um, <laughs> and then Neckbeard Death Camp is such an interesting project in my mind, which is probably totally defunct if if what Harris said has been, is to be taken uh, for granted. Um, But yeah, really excellent four way split and race traders. New one just came out too. Yeah. Uh, Excellent choices. Well, thanks. Dylan.
0: Uh, I don't have anything. There's, i don't know i'm out
1: i'm (laughs) out i'm I'm out
0: of bands to share with people no uh i don't know man i'm looking through looking through like uh some of the stuff i was listening to recently and i was like i think all this is appropriately rated
1: (laughs) 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 i can't find anything underrated let's not call it an underrated gem let's just call it a recommendation
0: (laughs) recommendation
1: (laughs) okay but don't feel pressured either i mean we came up with i have no, another no. one if you don't want to give one
0: no, no i got i got i got one this 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 came out in 2016 um the only reason why i knew about it was because it was when i was still writing for cult nation and they asked me to do a review of this band uh, the band was Prospects flesh and the release is called ordered image i think it's just an ep and it came out on static shock which is a very very reliable label for all things all things i was thinking about is
1: like the british iron lung in my mind
0: yeah that's a good way that is a good way to look at it honestly um and yeah the the that whole ep it actually it also sounds like something that that would come out on iron lung it's (laughs) flea. yeah i i don't know how else to really describe it i think like before like that trope of of bands kind of like uh being kind of like spooky and mysterious, but still like uh, having really like hardcore sentiment in their songs. Um, it's just good. I don't know. I, uh, I I don't have anything particularly profound to say about it. But ordered image perspect flesh. Really, really good EP. And yeah, that's it. That's all I got. Love it.
1: Good. 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 Bad.